Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. Hello, today is Thursday, March 14th, 2019. Attorney Charles Marshall here, broadcasting live from Southern California, here on the Neil Garfield Show. Uh, As always, I remind listeners that typically I am hosting the Neil Garfield Show every other week, and then Neil is uh, alternating on the other weeks, is broadcasting and hosting of the show. So we anticipate Neo will be back hosting again next Thursday. And also, as always, this show is brought to you by GTC Honors, Living Lies, and LendingLies.com. And it is made possible because of donations from listeners like you. Any amount that you're able to donate is appreciated and you can donate directly by selecting the donate button on the blog at www.livinglies.wordpress.com. Now today what we're going to be covering is all things California Homeowner Bill of Rights and specifically how the Homeowner Bill of Rights is playing out in the real legal world here in 2019, given the amendments and given some of the sections disappearing in 2018 January, when some provisions were sunsetted, yet other provisions continue, and still other provisions have kind of morphed into new uh, statutory guidelines. Now, what I won't do on today's show, given the 30-minute time uh, frame that we're dealing with, and also, uh, remember, this is not legal advice I'm imparting. I'm trying to give borrowers, homeowners, real tools for then consulting with an attorney or if they're pro per pro se, uh, looking to other resources so that they can take the information on this show and then put it possibly into a legal context. But the advice uh, that is being imparted on this show is not legal advice. It's just my thoughts, not random, mind you, not random. Nevertheless, just one man's take on the Homeowner Bill of Rights here in 2019. 
So the first uh, area that we're going to cover, uh, we're going to cover several areas. Uh, we're going to cover how the Homeowner Bill of Rights lays out. In other words, what are the implications for the Homeowner Bill of Rights when you're dealing with the following areas, all of them related to litigation of some kind. Uh, first of all, we have pre-litigation practice. Uh, that's essentially where there's a lawsuit in the works. We're talking about plaintiff's lawsuits here in California against institutional lenders and servicers. And there's always a pre-litigation time period while the case is being prepared. The California Homeowner Bill of Rights here, even in 2019, some now basically six years past when it was initially enacted, it still has a major uh, still has a major role to play in pre-litigation, as well in the litigation arena. Once a lawsuit is pending, and then I'm going to be covering the role of high board and appellate practice, and finally, bankruptcy practice. So we'll get right in right now to what this looks like in the pre-litigation arena. Now, in the pre-litigation arena, the lawsuits being framed, the anticipated timing of the filing, of course, that's been in on lots of variables we won't get into uh, too many of the mechanics of that. What, what I will say is that the typical time frame is going to be so many weeks or months out. Sometimes there'll be a sale date situation right in front of you. Uh, maybe you have a sale date as a homeowner that's uh, know, three days away, five days away. Uh, there are some issues with trying to use the California Homeowner Bill of Rights in that context. One of the most important sort of first principles when you're looking at you're looking at uh, by the way, yes, I'm talking about the California Homeowner Bill of Rights as a strategic tool here, uh, and just to anticipate arguments from the other side, uh, no, this is not discussing some kind of nefarious plan, uh, you know, to facilitate. Fraud. It's not even not, not even approaching fraud. This, this is a, a legitimate legal tool that is in the statutory framework. It's meant to help homeowners resolve uh, their situation. So it can be used strategically, and notwithstanding that a lot of these uh, modifications are denied, while you are under review. Uh, under various sections of the California Homeowner Bill of Rights, which re remember is a, is a number of statutory provisions within a whole section, primarily of the California Civil Code. So bottom line there is it's accepted practice even here in 2019, the servicers are typically going to interpret if you have a, uh, so-called loan mod package under review within seven days, one week of a given sale date, then theoretically that can trigger a postponement. Uh, and you know, the rules on that are complex. To some extent, they're going to depend 
on whether you had a review prior to that time in which there was a final decision that either didn't qualify for a review or you were denied. You know, that denial could be two or three years back. Pre-2018, if the property went to sale, even though you were under review, again, you know, your remedy there might be pretty limited. 2019, one of the interesting things about the statutory framework as it exists now in California related to this very big issue is that theoretically you can have multiple reviews and multiple denials and multiple situations where there's even a finding, you know, with a final letter sent to the, to the homeowner saying, look, you just don't qualify. I mean, you don't, you don't qualify for foreclosure alternatives, and which is a finding, you know, in terms of a loan mod submission that you don't qualify, even if it's not saying, you know, we've reviewed your numbers, we've reviewed your whole scenario fully, and we're denying you for the following reasons. If rather than getting a specific rejection denial, you instead get, we're not really taking up your application in full, Instead, uh, we're punting and saying that you don't, you don't qualify for review. Either way, that's treated uh, as a denial. So the upshot there, and again, I'm not making recommendations here. I'm giving you information to then use to get further legal advice, uh, since we're not giving you legal advice here, but to get legal advice elsewhere with a qualified attorney. Uh, so, not saying that you can be under review multiple times and saying that the law is really not clear about that. And so that's one possible play that can be made. I have seen it put into place successfully. I have seen borrowers and homeowners get postponements where they had denials that were not like many years ago. Denials may have been you know, six months previous, that type of thing. Uh, so, you know, the other big issue with pre-litigation, and I think homeowners focus on this a little much, but it's an understandable concern. From their point of view, it's like, okay, I'm bringing this lawsuit, and I know that the defendant's on the other side. I know they're not properly authorized to claim they have control of my note and that they often are as it were, a pretender lender and the servicer acting on behalf of that pretender lender or the servicer claiming to have possession of your note and, and, and acting also in the capacity of the pretender lender, that these entities, if, if you're alleging on the one hand that they don't have standing and they don't have legitimacy to, to put you in default, to collect from you as the, the homeowner, then the analytical question, and it's a common sense question also, and it does make sense, that question is, you know, why am I even uh, considering doing a loan modification with these people? I, I see them as not even legitimate. I see them as no having no right to collect. Why would I go under review? Well, that's an interesting question couple of ways of looking at that. One is 
even in pleading itself, you can you can plead inconsistent theories. So, yes, at some level, when you're under review, you are sort of acting as if they have authority to do something and issue something on your behalf. On the other hand, unless they actually issue you a successful loan mod package of some sort, we're talking about the servicer that you're, you're submitting your loan mod docs to, unless they actually, quote, unquote, make you successful, at least in terms of offering you something, and you sign off on that by, at a minimum, entering into the uh, inevitably required status payments, where trial period, typically three months, unless you're at least making those payments and or you've signed the new loan mod, you really haven't legally acknowledged that they're the proper creditor. Now, are there judges who will see you acting in some kind of duplicitous way by doing this? There are, but to be fair, that's not really my experience. Uh, my experience is judges can even sometimes look at efforts to get some kind of loan mod in and done and resolved, even while litigation is about to commence. They can look at that as an effort on the borrower or homeowner's part to, to resolve the matter. So the litigation isn't required, and that is a legitimate legal way of looking at it. Settlements happen all the time in other areas of litigation, it doesn't mean that either side is acknowledging that uh, the, the liability they're alleging goes away. It means that they're settling their differences and neither side admits anything in that. And you can be looking at the same scenario with a loan mod submission. So you can use litigation uh, as a tool, not solely to postpone sale dates. Um, I, I meant to say the, the loan mod submission. Um, again, it's, it's a mischaracterization to say, oh, you've done this, you know, as a fraud only to postpone sale dates. No. As, as a consequence, sometimes under the rules as they exist, sometimes the sale date will be postponed. That doesn't mean you are playing the system or scamming the system if you use the tools, tools available. So, yes, in pre-litigation, you can sometimes get a sale postponement. Now, once you're in litigation, once it's moving forward, the, the way that uh, getting under review would work when you have sale dates in front of you. And, look, keep in mind, if you have, say, if you have litigation pending in California, it depends on who's on the other side. There are so many variables and elements to this. It's going to depend on who your servicer is, who your sales trustee is. Remember, in the non-judicial framework, as it exists in California or anywhere else, sales trustee is appointed by the servicer. You know, and sometimes they have a close coordination. They're supposed to be legally separate. So the sales trustee is the one who coordinates with the auctioneer on behalf of the servicer and brings your property to sale. So when litigation is pending, oftentimes the servicers will just postpone while the litigation pens. And they, they do that for prudential reasons. They do it uh, because if the property does go to sale, 
and then all of a sudden you get past the mirror and your case is going to trial, or all of a sudden you get past the motion for summary judgment that's pending and your case goes to trial, they've got a lot of potential liability there. So they make a calculation in many cases. Either to roll sale dates, that's where they get postponed time and time again, or they oftentimes will just outright cancel sale dates. So what will happen, though, if they won't cancel sale dates? Uh, Again, you've you've got a number of conundrums here. Um, The rules here are complex. Certainly you will need to contact an attorney to get the full download on this. What What I can tell you is that some of the issues you're going to be looking at when you're in litigation related to the homeowner bill of rights, um, you know, when you're in litigation, the- theoretically only the attorneys contact each other. But you also have to remember that if you interpret the rules strictly under litigation practice, if we, we were talking about any other area of law, under litigation practice, Neither party is supposed to contact the other. Only the attorneys are to contact each other. But guess what? Even while litigation is pending, even while these defendants have these large attorney firms that they're billing out at, I don't know if it's $1,000 an hour in some cases. I know it's five to 700 I know it's more in some cases. Crazy money. And, and and there you are. So even while that's going on, these institutional servicers, they'll be sending out letters and almost all litigation. Now, I'm not saying they, they do it all the time, uh, as I just said, almost all. I'm not saying all in every single case. No. Uh, sometimes they actually follow the litigation rules, and while litigation is pending, they don't send out statements. They don't send out anything. And, of course, they have the disclaimer just like they do because of bankruptcy situations now. It's like, if you're in bankruptcy, this is not meant to collect a debt. Oh, if you're not in bankruptcy, then, you know, ignore that. Oh, if you are in bankruptcy, uh, this is for information purposes only. They don't even say if you're in litigation, this is for information purposes only, though. I've seen that a couple times, but it's unusual. Bottom line is, under the rules, if this were any other type of litigation, they shouldn't be sending any communication to you at all. They should not be calling you at all, saying this is what you owe. They should not be sending you reminders. They should not be sending you mortgage statements. It's not to say that it's illicit under the rules for you to receive any of those kinds of documents. It's to say that every single one of those documents should come literally from the opposition attorney law firm. It should come with a letterhead from the law firm itself. Does that happen in the real world? Not very often. On the other hand, when you as the borrower contact the servicer, let's say, to get a loan mod started because you got sale dates in front of you, hey, let's say a hypothetical scenario. You have a sale date four to six weeks down the road. You're in litigation. You know, the attorneys uh, on the other side are telling your attorney or they're telling you as a pro per or pro se, they're saying, look, we're not postponing. Yeah, your sale date's four to six weeks away. Yeah, you know, there's a demure hearing coming up. Pound sand, we're not postponing. Now, a couple of different ways to look at that. Theoretically, under the rules, uh, you're not supposed to contact uh, the other side. Uh, can you contact them you know, as an independent party? 
Um, you know, real world, uh, I think you should consult with an attorney and, and look at how specific attorneys handle that. Um, but as a reminder, it's common practice for the institutional servicers to contact you. Now, hypothetically, if you did contact the servicer yourself or your attorney did even while litigation was pending, um, you know, the other side, their attorneys can come to your attorney and say, look, they shouldn't be making these contacts. It all needs to go through the attorney firm. If you get that communication, if your attorney gets that communication, then uh, I think, you know, again, not giving advice here, just giving you real world. I mean, they are representing accurately the rules. Uh, your attorney could say, okay, well, make sure you send out no mortgage statements or other communications to my client then. Make sure it all comes from you, the attorney, not the servicer, you know, itself. Um, I mean, good luck with that. Uh, in my experience, uh, you you will often still continue to get these communications from the servicer. At the end of the day, courts rarely will get involved in this type of thing. So it's kind of a minor issue. On the other hand, it is available theoretically, despite the rules, which again are complicated, somewhat convoluted, um, to contact the servicer during litigation, get home mod documents, loan mod documents in, get under review. See, this is the other big issue, is that you have to, you have, to have the magic words happen when you're in this situation with a, with a loan mod review. The magic words are, you're under review. Until you get a letter, until you get a representation from the servicer or the, or the attorney acting on behalf of the servicer, which literally indicates and ideally puts in writing, you are under review for purposes of a loan mod submission you've made. What that means legally, practically, and otherwise is you've put in documents. They're saying you don't need to put in more documents right now. Sometimes they'll ask for additional income statements. Sometimes they'll ask for different bank statements. Sometimes they'll ask for a clarification of whether there's any rental income. There are all kinds of scenarios. Bottom line, if you get the magic words you're under review, then sale postponement becomes more realistic because under the rules, under the Homeowner Bill of Rights framework, statutorily, um, you know, statutory architecture that exists here, that's a sale that really should be postponed. Now, the way this plays out in appellate practice is similar to litigation. Uh, again, typically when your case is on appeal, sale dates are either going to be rolled or canceled outright. And it's, it's really for the same reason that they would be postponed at the lower level. Because in the real world, the legal world, when your case is on appeal, it's going to go to oral argument eventually. And even though California particularly continues to whittle away at the, uh, the rights of litigants, particularly in this area, to have their day in court, to have a meaningful hearing, that's a topic for another day and another show. I will just say real quickly about that. Just as tentative rulings have more or less wiped out the the tone and tenor and, frankly, value of oral argument at the lower court level. Now tentative rulings are creeping in to the appellate court system, all six 
all six appellate courts in California. Uh, they're also creeping in at the federal level where rather than getting the tentative ruling per se, the ruling will be, uh, we're just taking your, 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 your hearing off calendar because we can decide this on the pleadings. And the tentative ruling, uh, the way it operates at the state appellate level is they're, they're literally issuing tentative rulings anywhere from one to three days in advance of the hearing. Sometimes they'll, they'll, they'll issue them at the hearing while the attorneys are, are in the gallery waiting for their case to be called, sifting through, through notes, sifting through final uh, organization and, and, and kind of insurance framing on their points and their oral argument. Here you have a tentative ruling show up. You know, you're going to be presenting hypothetically 20 minutes down the road, and, and then you're getting your tentative ruling. That's not uh, particularly procedurally fair. And to be fair, I've only seen that a couple of times, and that was a couple of years back now. So I think the system is becoming more regularized. Uh, however, I don't think it's a good or a fair procedure to have oral argument essentially uh, – hijacked by a tentative ruling because tentative rulings are rarely reversed. That's the big problem with them and how they interfere with oral argument. And so uh, then we have bankruptcy practice and with bankruptcy practice, you know, interesting, I'm not going to say this is a bait and switch, but the bankruptcy system is, is set up so that theoretically there is in most, of the four bankruptcy districts in California, you've got Southern, you've got Central, you've got Northern, you've got Eastern, covering all of California. So, you know, I've had a bunch of cases over the years and all of them. Bottom line, the way that plays out in the real world is there's a procedure in each one of those districts for you to actually have the bankruptcy court kind of shepherd, kind of monitor, Worst case, even babysit uh, a loan mod application. And it, and it does put some pressure on the servicer to come back with some kind of a legitimate offer. A couple of problems, though. One problem is if you're too far in arrearages, which a lot of uh, homeowners and borrowers are when they get to bankruptcy, if they get to bankruptcy, uh, you're less likely to have the court agree to entertain, you know, having a loan mod uh, shepherded through. Uh, sometimes you can do a loan mod, uh, you know, even while the, the bankruptcy is pending, meaning the loan mod review. Other times the servicer will shut it down and say, look, we're not going to, uh, we're not going to, to review. Uh, we're just, we're just not going to do it uh, while your bankruptcy is pending. Um you know, the other important issue, though, and this is another limitation to this type of review in bankruptcy, when the, ba the bankruptcy court is actually formally kind of uh, in control of, of monitoring your, your loan mod, the other problem there is they often will uh, impose quite, quite onerous status payments and, and, you know, preservation payments. They're meant to preserve the position of the servicer of the nominal lender while the bankruptcy is pending. 
So how that can play out in the real world is you're making your monthly payment while the bankruptcy is pending to, uh, you know, whatever your mortgage payment was, you have, you're making that typically to the bankruptcy court. Then you're paying a separate fee to the trustee. Then you're paying off some of the arrears uh, at the same time. I mean, you can have a payment in front of you or five, seven, you know, uh, seven, five hundred. I mean, that's that's just not doable for, for, for most individuals. So, you know, that's, that's how this uh, plays out. Uh, in these arenas, you know, the California Homeowner Bill of Rights, uh, there should be enough nuggets in there uh, for listeners to look at this uh, on their own, through their attorneys, through other avenues. And Neil will be back next week. And I will be back the week after. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.